Uh, hey guys. Morning. Morning. How are you? Yeah. Man, it's good not to be like just sweating from just existing right now. I mean, today is a beautiful day. It's good to see you all. Welcome. Uh, my name's Matt, one of the pastors, and uh, you know, you weren't supposed to have me today. Scott was supposed to be here, but he's feeling under the weather, so he called me up earlier this week and said, hey, Matt, I need you this Sunday, so you're stuck with me today. But I'm glad to be stuck with you as well. Uh, I, you may notice, I don't know if you can tell online or in the, I'm a little crispy around the edges here, especially the back of my neck, and this, this big guy right here. Um, uh, and that's because yesterday we had our block party event at our North Avenue campus down in Burlington, where we invited uh, everyone. You guys, we invited our neighbors down in Burlington to come and just enjoy a few hours of bounce houses and cotton candy and snow cones uh, and to serve our community and the people with uh, families going back to school soon with uh, things like school supplies and uh, some haircuts, back to school haircuts. So I just want to say to all of you, thanks for being a part of it. So many of you donated school supplies at both campuses, pens, pencils, backpacks, notebooks, all those things. We gave away everything but like a little bundle of unsharpened pencils. That's all we have left. So I want to say thanks for donating. I want to say thanks to you who volunteered, who came to help set up to uh, serve cotton candy, to just be there and hang out and get to know some people. Thank you for that. And uh, a big thanks to Hannah Lumen, who is our elementary director here at Essex and our North Avenue campus uh, kidsman director. She planned everything. She did everything. So if you see Hannah, if you know her, send her a note, give her a pat on the back. A big thank you to Hannah for making that happen. It really was a great day. We had, um, I tried to count. And you know, whenever you try to count a crowd that's moving, it's, yeah, I mean, you're never going to get it right. I counted well, you know, well over 300 people and kids and everyone that was there. So it was a really fun day, a really great day. And I heard a lot of thank yous from people in the neighborhood of, of what we were doing, not just having fun, but for really serving our community with some of those school supplies and haircuts and all that. So big thank you to you guys. And praise God, it was a really great day. So I'm a little crispy because of that, but it's worth it. Had a great time. Uh, today, we're going to continue our sermon series that we've been in, uh, in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, looking at these seven uh, short little letters written uh, by John, the words of Jesus, to seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And this series, we're calling, What Does Jesus have to say to the church, but really cutting to the heart of it. What does Jesus have to say to me through these seven letters? So this is week six, I think. Week six of this series. Uh, you can find all the previous week's uh, sermons. If you missed any, you want to catch up on YouTube, just go to YouTube, ch- uh, type in Essex Alliance Church. You'll find us there. Make sure you subscribe there. And did you know that we also have all our sermons in podcast form? We do. So if you're like driving in your car and and you just want to listen while you're driving, you go to Spotify, Apple, wherever pods are casted, you can find us there. Essex Alliance Church, you can find our previous week's sermons as well in podcast form. So we're going to launch in Revelation 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 today. But before we really get into the text, I want to just take a minute on something that I find very interesting about these letters or about these letters in Revelation, and by extension, the book of Revelation as a whole. So let's take a minute on this. Uh, With ancient letters and writings, particularly what we find in the New Testament, you know, we got got, uh, 26 books in the New Testament. Uh, You know, when Paul or John or someone would write a letter or a document to a church, they would write it, and then it would be carried by hand by someone and given to the leader of that church, 
And then that church would gather together as that letter was opened up and they would read it aloud together and they would discuss it. And then what they would do with that letter is they would copy it to preserve it for themselves. They'd copy it once, twice, a few times. And often, if a church found that letter particularly insightful or challenging or helpful, they would then start to pass it along to other churches in the region. And they would read it and discuss it and copy it and so on and so forth. And this is really how the New Testament developed, was these documents, these writings, disseminating around the Roman world to churches all over the place. And this is how that process took place. They would preserve it, read it, copy it, discuss it, pass it on. Uh, As part of the early movement of the book of Revelation here, chapters two and three, what we've been talking about, there's seven short letters from Jesus to seven churches. Uh, I got a map. I want to see these cities and churches on this map here. So you can probably see this map here. This, these are our seven churches and the seven cities that they're represented in. All here in modern day Turkey called Asia Minor back then. We have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, those, everything we've talked about those in weeks previous. Today we're going to talk about Philadelphia, this Philadelphia, okay? And uh, lastly, Laodicea there. So I, I, I just find this interesting that this is no accident that these are the cities that were chosen for this letter to be written to, for Revelation to be written to. Real places with real churches going through real situations that these seven letters address to that particular church in their particular situation, as well as the whole book speaking to each church and every church about what's going on. Let me explain that a little more. So all these churches, they're in the same region of Asia Minor here, right? The west coast of Asia Minor. They're all in the same region. The book of Revelation was written by John and sent to the churches in these cities, and you can chart the course, right? It starts in Ephesus. Ephesus is a port city. It's a major city. That's stop one, and then it would go to Smyrna and Pergamum and kind of make its way around the circle here, addressing each church. It was written to each of these churches, and it would make its way around. Revelation is a circular letter, written not just to be shared with one church in one place, but with multiple churches spread out across a region, read, copied, discussed, and passed on. You can take the picture down, Cam. And because Revelation is a book addressed to multiple churches in multiple places, its message goes beyond the setting and circumstance of any one place, right? It's meant to move on. It's meant to continue. It goes beyond that one place. And I want to say the number seven is also significant. Seven churches, seven letters. Seven is a number used in scripture to signify wholeness or completion or totality. That idea of something being complete. Um, In the first pages of the Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth. It takes him six days, but he takes a seventh day. And what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. The job is done. It's complete. And from that pattern, the number seven is used throughout scripture to signify completion, wholeness, totality. Revelation, symbolically addressed to seven churches, is addressed to every church. The whole of churches, the totality of churches in all places and all times. So why do I say this? I just want to reiterate the point that this book, Revelation, including each of these seven letters, is not just for that particular church. It's for us today as well. It's a book for us today as well, a message for you and for me. So with that in mind, 
We're going to go to Revelation chapter 3 to today's letter, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. So verses 7 through 13. If you have your Bible, follow along. If you have an app on your phone, you can open it up or you can just listen and follow along on the screen. Here's what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them uh, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll stop. This letter is pretty glowing. (laughs) Of these seven letters that we've been talking about, the letter to, the, to Philadelphia is probably the most positive out of all of them. No condemnation, no warnings. These are words of promise and hope to this church. Now, there's not a lot about, uh, about the church of Philadelphia told to us, but I think we can examine what's here and come to a pretty uh, sound conclusion uh, about this church and the kind of church that they are. So I want to go back. We're going to read verses 8 through 10 and look in, in what kind of church the church of Philadelphia is and was. So here we go. Verses 8 through 10 again say this. Jesus says to them, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, They're liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the the earth. We'll stop. Uh, So what kind of church is this? Jesus starts by saying to them, I know that you have little strength. That seems a little harsh. (laughs) Seems a little harsh. But he says immediately afterwards, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, you have little strength, but you've held on. You've remained faithful. This word strength that's used here comes from this Greek word dunamis, which means uh, power or might. It's where we get our word dynamite from. This word dunamis, power, strength, might. And you can apply this word to an institution or to uh, something like a church. And uh, you could say impact or influence, right? The sort of the power you have in your surrounding community and the impact or influence. And I like that word power. You have little power, Jesus says, but you've held on and remained faithful. Then in verse 9 here, Jesus mentions that there are some people from the synagogue of Satan. 
who appear to be oppressing the church in some way. And uh, Jesus says he's going to make them see the truth eventually and acknowledge the truth. And then in verse 10, Jesus says that the church, he kind of reiterates this, they've kept his command to endure patiently. So sort of putting these pieces together here, we can get a sketchy picture of what this church in the city of Philadelphia looks like. They love Jesus. They're faithful to him. They've held on to him. But they've come up against some oppression from an outside force, which Jesus labels as uh, the synagogue of Satan. And they've stripped the church of their dunamis, of their power, their influence or their impact in their city. The church in the first century world was still very much tied into Judaism, Right? Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled the Jewish scriptures, who uh, brought people into relationship with Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And uh, scholars uh, believe that this synagogue of Satan mentioned here very simply was the Jewish community in the city of Philadelphia. Now, to be Jewish by ethnicity was to be part of God's chosen people. They were chosen by their ethnicity. So here comes this new thing, the church, sort of a Jewish expression, a new Jewish expression, claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, right? But they're, and they're worshiping differently, and they're including Gentiles, non-Jews, into their community and into their worship. They're ignoring those, some of those laws, like what they're supposed to eat and all that. They're not doing all the things they're supposed to do. They aren't Jews. They aren't God's people, right? Only we are, claim this population of ethnic Jewish people in the city. And when they do that, they're closing the door or attempting to close the door on the church in Philadelphia, their influence and their impact in two ways. They're attempting to shut the door politically on them, first of all. You know, the Romans conquered the whole Mediterranean region. So many people groups and tribes and and nations that already existed. Out of all of those, the Jewish people were the only group in the whole empire that were granted special permission by the Roman authorities to be exempt from worshiping the Roman gods and taking part in the Roman festivals. The Jewish people were the only people who were allowed to continue to exclusively worship their God, the one true God. So by the Jewish population, the synagogue of Satan, as Jesus calls them, saying, hey, you're not, you're not part of God's people. You're not part of the Jewish people. That would put the church in jeopardy from being able to continue to enjoy this special privilege of worshiping Jesus and worshiping him exclusively and worshiping the one true God. So he's trying to shut the door on them one way. Another way that they would shut the door on them by claiming this is sort of a social shutting of the door. This population claimed that they alone were the true people of God, right? And they would exclude the church from any presence in the synagogue or social life among their fellow Yahweh worshipers. And this would be disheartening and discouraging for the church and would make their sort of monotheistic community very small and limited only to, their, uh, to themselves there. And both of these things would label the church as social outcasts in the city and in the culture and would open them up to oppression from other groups and persecution as well. So they tried to shut the door on the church's ability to influence and impact the community and the city. And by all accounts that we can tell today, the Philadelphian church at the time was small and indeed they were without influence. And yet they were faithful. They loved Jesus and held on tight to him. So, you know, we've sort of taken this format in this series as 
what kind of church is this and what does Jesus say to that kind of church? So what kind of church is this church at Philadelphia? I had trouble coming up with a good word this week, but I landed on one that I think, I think makes sense and I'll explain. The church in Philadelphia was a powerless church. A powerless church, unable to make an impact, unable to influence their culture, kept behind closed doors, doing what they could to hold on and remain faithful, but in terms of that impact and influence, they were, they were powerless. So many churches today in Vermont and New England and, and all across the world are very much akin to the church in Philadelphia. We feel powerless often in the face of an ever-changing and growingly hostile culture. A lot of small staffs or part-time pastors, shrinking attendance, shrinking budgets, churches spending energy just keeping doors open and lights on, right? You can't even begin to think beyond that. It's taking everything we are just to exist. Or kept at bay by a culture that would much, much rather have the church kind of keep quiet on a lot of things, right? By fear, by closed doors, whatever it might be. And so many of us as individuals might sort of experience those same things. Unable to make an impact on our neighbors or families or workplaces because we feel like doors are kept closed on us. We have a sense of fear of offending people or angering people. Unable to influence and impact. Much like the Philadelphian church. Feeling powerless even as we cling to Jesus. And to the powerless church and to the powerless Christian, Jesus says in this letter, hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I am coming. And when he comes, you won't feel powerless anymore. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor and author and he said these words, the smaller you are, the weaker you feel, the more it seems Jesus wants to come alongside and give you promise after promise and blessing after blessing. Now, woven throughout this short letter to the Philadelphian church, the powerless church, Jesus makes six promises. Six promises to the powerless church and to the powerless Christian. When you feel stuck behind closed doors, unable to make an impact, and it's taking all you have just to hold on to him, Jesus makes six promises to us in this letter as he says, hold on, I'm coming. So let's go back through this letter and look at these six promises that Jesus makes. The first promise he makes, he promises an open door. Let's go back to verses seven and eight where Jesus says this. These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He who holds the key of David, what he opens can't be shut, and what he shuts can't be opened, and he has opened the door. Often in the New Testament, this open door terminology refers to uh, evangelistic opportunity. The Apostle Paul, he uses this metaphor quite a few times talking about open door in terms of evangelism. Now, the city of Philadelphia 
was established in the second century BC, so a couple hundred years before Jesus came along. Uh, and it's at the eastern end of this uh, pretty broad valley that leads towards the Aegean Sea there on Asia Minor. Philadelphia is located at the mouth of this very fertile valley, and this valley was good for growing grapes which made Philadelphia, the city, and the surrounding region fairly wealthy because of their agriculture and their ability there at this fertile valley. Uh, Not to mention there at the city of Philadelphia, three major trade routes sort of converged together there. Uh, Philadelphia was established by the Greeks before the Romans came along, and it was labeled by them as the gateway to the east. Because of its location, the city had great uh, commercial and cultural importance. The Greeks also termed the city of Philadelphia, they termed it this way, they called it a missionary city. Because of its location, they saw it as sort of a home base or a hub through which to influence the whole area and bring uh, this Greek culture to the whole region using Philadelphia as sort of the home base there. Excuse me. It was a very important city, wealthy city, um, high significance, and made a high impact in the area. And that, to me, is a very interesting contrast, that on the one hand, we have a city that is totally significant for the region, prosperous, uh, very strategic in where it's uh, placed there at the gateway of this fertile valley, drawing great resources, making high impact in the region, contrasted with the church that represents the city, which is small, lacking influence, and insignificant. And I find that to be a very interesting contrast between the city and the church represented in the city. And Jesus says to this church, I've opened the door. I've opened the door for you to have impact and influence and find significance as you walk through the door that I opened in my power. But this promise of an open door, that's not all that's meant by this. Jesus here is described as the one who holds the key of David who opens a door that no one can shut and, opens the, and shuts the doors no one can open. This is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 22. Now, uh, in Isaiah 22, King Hezekiah is sitting on David's throne. He's the king, right? He's taking, uh, you know, he's king of the kingdom of Judah and, and he sits on David's throne in his house. Eliakim was his steward. And in Isaiah 22, 22, These same words said about Jesus here, holding the key of David, shutting doors, opening doors, these same words are used to refer to Eliakim, the steward of the king. The one with the key to the house of David had the authority to open the door for someone to come in and to the presence of the king and come before him, or close the door and keep someone from coming in to the presence of the king and stand before him. He could admit or not admit people into the presence of the king. And this is applied here to Jesus. Jesus is the one who decides who enters the presence of the king. Why does this matter? Remember that Jewish community was trying to shut the door on the church, right? To keep them out of social influence, to keep them out of social impact. But more importantly, to try and keep them out of God's kingdom. You are not God's people, we are. Well, they don't get to decide that. Jesus gets to decide that. And Jesus says to the church, actually, church, you might feel like doors are closed, but I've opened them for you. You can enter the presence of the king. And no one else, not them or anyone else, can shut that door. The open door means that you get to be with the king and that you truly are God's people. It's a spiritual reminder to the powerless church 
we belong to God, who is the most powerful. It's the first promise. Second promise Jesus makes here in this short letter is the promise for vindication. Let's go to verse 9, where Jesus says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be uh, Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus doesn't promise... He doesn't promise to destroy the church's enemies or to defeat them. Rather, rather he says, they'll come, fall down at your feet. That's a very humble and sort of desperate place to be. And he says that they will acknowledge, not that they were wrong, not that you were right, but they will acknowledge that God indeed loves these people, loves the church. He will bring vindication to the powerless church. Truth will be seen and the truth will be accepted by those who previously slandered and oppressed promise of vindication is powerful. It's powerful for someone who is desperately holding on to something that they believe in. I mean, have you had those moments, moments where you know you're right or you know you're doing the right thing, but, but no one else seems to get it? And you get to that point of thinking, uh, what's the point? I should just give up. I'm tired of fighting and defending myself. It's getting old. You know, it's like 90% of my interactions with my kids, <laughs> Right? Eat this vegetable. It's good for you. <laughs> no. Drink water. It's like 95 degrees and 95% humidity. Before you go outside, please drink some water. No. I don't want you to die, child. Ah, I'm not thirsty. And then 20 minutes later, they run back inside and they're chugging a glass of water. And, you know, they're vindication. Yes. I was right. See a kid? You know. They never, they never acknowledge it, you know. But in those real moments where no one else seems to get it, Right? The promise of vindication can keep you holding on, knowing a time is coming when other people will see it and they'll get it and they'll understand it. And if anyone has ever told you that following Jesus is foolish or it's too restrictive or it's no fun or, or whatever, you will be vindicated when he comes again. That day is coming. He promises it. Third promise Jesus makes to a powerless church is the promise of protection. Go to verse 10, where Jesus says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, scholars are kind of split, a little unclear as to whether this hour of trial Jesus is talking about here is some final moment of tribulation that comes at the end when he returns or if it's some momentary period of trial and testings that's going to happen in their lifetime that like the whole world's kind of going to experience the Roman world and them as well. Uh, either way you read it, the promise of Jesus is the same. He will protect us. Jesus does not promise here that he will remove us from trial. He's not talking about the rapture. He says he will keep us. And this word keep in the Greek means to guard or to take care of. That's what this word means. And it's the same word and the same phrasing used in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 15, as he's praying for his disciples. And by extension, he's praying for all believers today as well. When he says in verse 15, John 17, 15, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The promise Jesus makes is not removal from trial, but protection 
protection from sin and protection from evil. God's people, we experience trials in different way than the rest of the world does because we have a different relationship with our God. We experience it in a different way. And it will be different for those who have endured patiently and held on to faith despite being powerless. When trials come, he will protect us in it. In those trials, whatever it looks like, we will have the power to endure because of Christ's abiding and protecting presence with us. Fourth promise he makes in these verses comes in verse 11. He says to the church, I am coming soon. He promises his presence. And this is the promise that all the other ones are kind of wrapped into, right? This coming means that all these other promises are gonna come true. His coming is good news. And he says, hey guys, I'm coming soon. You know, I found out in my life sometimes that uh, someone coming soon isn't always good news, though. Um, my last semester of college, <laughs> me and three other guys, we uh, rented this house in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And this house was beautiful. Uh, we probably should have rented a different house, but we went and we looked at it and we were like, we got to live here. So we rented this house and it was nice. It had great floors, nice finishes, nice appliances, all this. Uh, and it was right on the Anasquam River in Gloucester and it had this giant deck overlooking uh, the river. Now us college guys, we saw that and we're like, yeah, we're going to hang out on this deck. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a great place. And you know, when you move in in September, you only got like a couple weeks that you can really enjoy something like that. So we moved into this house and uh, our landlord, the owner of the house, uh, he was a real stickler. This house was his baby. Why in the Lord's good name, he would rent it to college students. I just, I never understood. And he did this year after year. And uh, this house was his baby. Uh, he would, and he would quite literally come once a week to the house just to like putz around. You know, he's keeping an eye on us. And uh, we're three college guys, right? We're slobs or four college guys. We're slobs, right? There's food, there's garbage, uh, you know, clothes. It's just not a good situation to walk into. So uh, he would often text us on short notice, like, I'm coming, I'm on my way. And sometimes you'd be in class or at work, but that text was an all hands on deck call, like whoever's around, get home, we got to clean, we got to tidy. And uh, on one occasion, I came home from class and uh, I pulled into the driveway and his truck was there and no other cars were there. I was like, oh no. And uh, he was like in the trash can and he was picking out the recycling from the trash and putting it into the, and I walked up and he, everything in that moment was just like laser focused right on me, like gotcha, you know, and it wasn't pretty. I caught, I caught it all in that moment, uh, all his frustrations and everything. The promise Jesus has to come here to the church of Philadelphia is good, but to the other churches in these letters, that promise wasn't a good thing. If you think back, if you are here the last few weeks, in the church of Ephesus, he says, uh, repent or I'll come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. And we won't go into that means, but not very good. Uh, then in, to the church of Pergamum, he says, repent or I'm going to come and fight you with a sword. And you're okay, that's not good either, Jesus. And then to the church in Sardis, he says, repent or I will come like a thief. The promise of him coming isn't always a good thing, but to those who endured, to the church that has held on to him, the church of Philadelphia, that promise of his coming is utterly good because with his presence comes his promises and his blessings. And all these other promises are wrapped into his coming. Hold on, he says, I'm coming and I'm coming soon. And when I do, your powerlessness will end and my promises will come true. 
Fifth promise he makes to the powerless church. He says that he will make you a pillar in the temple of God. Verse 12 starts this way. Jesus says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. We all have a pretty good idea what a pillar is, right? It's a foundational piece of a structure. It supports, it gives stability, looks nice. And uh, it's immovable, fixed, it's strong, it's important. Uh, I mentioned a little earlier that the church, or the city of Philadelphia was established at the mouth of this like fertile valley. Well, the reason this valley was so fertile was because it's a volcanic field. And you know, that was volcano. <laughs> and uh, that made the whole region, uh, it still does, susceptible to frequent earthquakes. In the year 17 AD, there was a pretty massive earthquake that shocked the region and damaged and destroyed much of the city of Philadelphia as well as cities all around the region of this valley. And people during that earthquake, they fled the city, they built new houses out in the country and they eventually returned, but as earthquakes happened, they would flee and return and flee and return. Jesus promises, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Powerless church, if you continue to hold on, if you continue to be faithful and to cling to Jesus, you have no reason to fear or to run. You are a pillar. You will not be shaken. You will not be destroyed. All the pillars and all the buildings and all the city may fall, but you will endure. You will stand. Jesus says, when I come, you will have my power and you will endure in God's house forever. And the final promise, the sixth promise he makes in these, in the short letter to the church in Philadelphia, the powerless church, he says, you belong to me. You belong to me. Verse 12 finishes up this way. Jesus continues, I will write on them on these pillars, on you, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God, and I will also write on them my new name. Inscriptions on pillars in ancient temples and buildings was pretty common practice. It's a way of indicating as you walk through the temple who that temple was dedicated to, or much like, you know, you walk around town, you see bricks or park benches with inscriptions on them, who that was dedicated for as well who is being honored by it. This threefold inscription of the names of Jesus that he promises here, right? The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name, this is an intense and undeniable indication for us that we do indeed belong to God. We are his possession, his name written on us. We are citizens of his kingdom, the name of his city, the new Jerusalem written on us. And we embody his character. The new name of Jesus, he says, not yet revealed, written on us. It's undeniable that we belong to him. This is important for the powerless church who is being told that you don't belong to God. Only by ethnicity can you be God's people. For Jesus to say, no church, you are undeniably mine, that matters. We belong to him. 
No, your identity as a human being created in his image and redeemed by his blood is totally found in who he is. You don't belong to what you do. You don't belong to what you're good at. You don't belong to what you're bad at. You don't have to chase anything because you're found in him and you belong to him. He knows your fears and he'll guide you through them. He he knows your weaknesses and he will strengthen you. He also knows your gifts and he will use them because you belong to him. And when he comes, he will write his name upon you and it will be undeniable that you are his forever and ever. To the powerless church, Jesus says, hold on, I'm coming. So I don't know where you're at right now, right? Maybe you're feeling great. Everything's going really well. Your faith has never been stronger. We celebrate that. Or maybe you might feel a little powerless these days. You know, it's real easy to feel powerless. So many things in our our lives and our world, our relationships, whatever, it can make us feel small or weak or insignificant, ineffective, or, or just drive us to that place where it's all we can do to kind of just hold on and, and wait it out and, and hold tight. You know, I know this past year, I've had, past two years almost, I've had those moments. Moments where, not just in my calling or vocation, but in my in the very core of my being and even in my faith where I've, I've kind of felt powerless, right? Having trouble hoping or feeling ineffective, unable to see those open doors that are just right in front of my face. And we don't have to rehash it all, what we've been through, right? Shutdowns, mandates, can't see friends, couldn't be at church together for a while, and, you know, right now things are uh, looking a little precarious. And, you know, those political conversations and tensions that cause division and put up walls and hard hearts and loud voices and all that. You know, I've often felt wave after wave of things so much bigger than myself that I just crashing down and boom, boom, and people I love and sometimes make me feel a little powerless. Maybe you've been there too. Maybe you're there now. You know, I often, it's easy to feel powerless in a world without all these extra things going on as well, <laughs> especially, especially these days. You know, Burlington, Vermont is the fourth least Jesus-loving city in the whole country. Uh, it's tricky to navigate sometimes. It can be hard to gain trust with people. People have trouble seeing the church as a positive influence sometimes, positive force, because, you know, there's so much narrative, so much narrative against us. Some of it's justified, a lot of it's not. So sometimes I feel powerless, right? Am I, are we really making a difference in this world? Are we having an impact? Are we having an influence? The answer is yes. Yes, we are. That's not because of us. It's because of Jesus. He's opened doors that no one can shut. He's made you a pillar in the temple of our God and written his name upon you. And he promises us vindication and protection as we go through these things. And he's coming. And these promises are for us as we endure. Remain faithful. Church, you are not powerless. Keep going. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep worshiping. 
keep holding on to him because we believe in our King Jesus and we believe in the mission that he sent us on and we believe that his promises are true. Would you stand as we pray? Lord, come soon. (laughs) Affect these promises. Make them true in our lives now. Help us in those moments where we feel small or powerless to lean on you, the powerful one. Help us to hold on and know that, hey, what we're doing, it matters, and, and this faith matters. And God, as we look to have that impact and influence on our neighbors, our friends, our families. Keep those doors open, Lord. Open them wide. Give us the strength to walk through and fill us with your power, the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would serve you well, that we would serve our world well, love them well, and see see a place changed for your glory here in Vermont, this nation, and this world. So God, I just ask, fill us, empower us, and help us to remember that even when we feel powerless, we are not because you are with us. We thank you, Lord, for these truths, for these promises. Send us out today in your name, holding on to your promises, and in your grace we pray. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you.